Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. Well, it's a great honour to be here. I don't know if the lights can come up, but if we could uh, just open our booklets. There's Romans chapter 1 in front of you. Um, If you can just have a look at them, that would be great. There's a passage there. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a great privilege to come and to look at this uh, subject of evangelism. And uh, I just wonder if we can um, uh, start, just by the way, I haven't met people here. My name's Rico Tice. Just, I'm from London. Um, I'm involved with the Christianity Explored course and I'm a curate at a church, All Souls Langham Place, uh, as, I'm, as I'm there. Just to say it is Rico Tice, not Tico Rice. I spent my life being called Tico Rice. That's like he's not number 42 at the takeaway. And um, <laughs> I'd just like to apologize too that I've taken my jacket off. I asked Bishop Ken if I could take my jacket off. He said be fi- that would be fine. And Bishop Nazarelli next to him interjected and said, what are you doing? No one ever asks a bishop for anything. But anyway, I have taken my jacket off, so I apologize for that. But just as uh, we start off with Romans 1 in front of us, I'm going to pray. And then I'd like you to to just for a couple of minutes turn to the person next to you and, and just try and answer this question. What stops us doing evangelism? So often the ideal can be here, and we know it's a wonderful thing that the gospel goes out, but really in our personal lives, and actually in our local churches, I'm an evangelist in, in my local church, what stops us doing it? If we can give our minds to that. Let's start, uh, I'll pray, and then let's think about that question, just a couple of minutes of chatting. If you don't want to chat to the person next to you, you can say, I don't want to chat to you. It's fine. <laughs> okay. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father God, we, we ask for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you so much for 75 years of seeking to proclaim the Lord Jesus. We thank you that deep down in our inner being, that's what we long for most. We're often so far from it, but thank you because of the miracle of your spirit, that is true. Lord, we do pray now that your word would lead us to greater godliness in this area of proclamation. And we ask this for our own sake and for the sake of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Great, just a couple of minutes. Yourself in your own life, or actually in your local church, what stops us doing this, getting the gospel out? A couple of minutes, and then we'll come back. Great, over to you. Great, we'll have a little seminar. There are only 2,000, it'll be fine.
Great, everybody. Okay, that's a great question to ask, particularly perhaps you're someone who's trying to train people in the church family. And I don't, I don't know what, you, what, what, what the response was. What is it that stops us? But some people will say, well, look, I know I'm going to get rejected. And just to say on that, the Lord Jesus says to his disciples, I send you out as sheep among wolves. So we are going to get rejected. And at that point of rejection, if I know I'm going to get rejected, what I've got to know is that my identity is not in whether you accept or reject me. My identity is in Romans 5 verse 8. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Is my identity in God's grace. If I don't do that, when I jump off for evangelism, while I'm heading into that, I'm just going to stop doing it. Whether you accept or reject me doesn't make me more valuable. What makes me valuable is the Lord Jesus died for me. Is that in my head or in my heart? 75 years, people can't keep going to the mission field unless they know that, nor us, uh, those of us at home. So I, I might be rejected. Secondly, I don't know what to say. Well, just to say uh, we're all in, in that place, and that's where we've got to train We've really got to be training ourselves. And here, let me teach you a little, little, little phrase. It's not out of the Bible, but it's very good. Are you ready? Here it is. The best spontaneity is rehearsed. Why don't we say it together? Are you ready? The best spontaneity is rehearsed. That's very embarrassed and rather pathetic, actually. Can we do that again? Are you ready? And the best spontaneity is rehearsed. And actually, there are three, three levels of speaking. Level one is self-focused. I remember the first time I tried to stand up and say something in a, in a debate at school about the Christian faith, and I, I just had this flood, I just was flooded with nervousness. I just had this rut, you sat, I, mean, I didn't know where I was. Level two is message focus. Have I got it right? Here is, here is God's words, am I right? But level three is audience focus. I'm on top of what I'm going to say, I can give myself to you, and brothers and sisters, that is practice. So we just need to practice with one another. How would I tell the story? How, how do I get the gospel out? And then say, Lord Jesus, please just give me an opportunity. Another issue might be, do you know what, evangelism's not my job, it's the pastor's job. So many think that. Well, can I tell you, shepherds don't give birth to sheep, sheep give birth to sheep. <laughs> and, and, and it's a striking thing. I was very moved last week, I was on a, a, a Christian camp away and I heard a talk about Booth, Moody, Spurgeon, Ryle, all one to faith by laymen. Booth, in fact, he looked like the son of a couple who'd lost their son. And he looked the same, so they befriended him in the street and took him to church. And in God's sovereignty, they must have been staggered at what that did. But, but it's not the pastor's job. But my job as a pastor is to be training people. The best spontaneity is rehearsed. Are we training? It won't work. It won't work. Well, it worked for you. You were dead in transgressions and sins, even if you, when you were a little one you came to faith. And God did a miracle. He sent the power that made the world and he opened your blind eyes, which is why any of us are here. It's a miracle with the power that made the world. And if God did it for me, he can do it for them. So I pray and I ask for boldness and I speak. And then, you know, perhaps, you know, another issue. Well, I don't know any non-Christians. I don't know any non-Christians. Well, hold on to your seats. I find this, uh, actually, I think... Probably the most encouraging verse on evangelism. Maybe you'll have it this week. I'm sure you will. Acts 17, 26, 27, 28. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the time set for them, the exact places where they should live. Why? Why did God do that? He determined the time set for you, the exact places where you should live, the workplace you're in, the street you're in, the school you're at. He determined. Why? Next verse. 
God did this so that men should seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. So God has put you where you are, and he's put you there to reach out to people. So as I sat on the plane and came over today, I thought, Lord, you've organized for me to sit next to this person. That gives you so much confidence. And so that's why in evangelism, it's two things. Yes, it's bring a friend, but secondly, it's invite a stranger. God has put you there, invite them. Bring them along, start up a conversation, because what's going on in history, Acts 17, 26, 27, 28, is that God has organized history so that people will come to know his son. So as I jump off into evangelism, I'm jumping off, number one, I'm held by the grace of God, my identity in God's grace. Secondly, by God's sovereignty, as I, I, God has put me here. So Lord, it's organized that I know these people, but may I reach out to them for your son. And thirdly, confidence in the word of God. God did it for me. He opened my blind eyes. I come from a tobacco family. My, made, my dad made cigarettes for 40 years. But God opened my blind eyes. And now at the age of 70, 70, he's opened my father's blind eyes. And it's because he does the miracle. So let's have the confidence. We present Christ and God opens blind eyes. So I don't know which one of those, whether they ring any bells, but I find in the church family, I'm just in, th- those are the issues that come up. Maybe you want to use this question if you're trying to train and, and get them out and then let's let the knowledge of the truth lead to godliness. Let's, let's allow the, the, the Bible to speak to those issues and let's do some training. I don't know if you, if you know this little illustration. A, a young police officer was taking his final exams at Hendon Police Training College in London. One of the questions read as follows. You're on patrol in the suburbs of London when an explosion occurs on a nearby street. On investigation, you find that a large hole has been blown in the footpath by a gas pipe and there's an overturned van lying nearby. Inside the van, there is a strong smell of alcohol. Both occupants, a man and a woman, are injured and you recognize the woman as the wife of your divisional inspector who is at present on holiday in the USA. A passing motorist stops to offer you assistance and you realize that he is a man who is wanted for armed robbery. Suddenly a man runs out of a nearby street shouting that his wife is expecting a baby and the shock of the explosion has made the birth imminent. Another man is crying for help, having been blown into an adjacent canal by the explosion and he cannot swim. And the exam went on, bearing in mind the provision of the Mental Health Act, describe in a few words what actions you would take. And the officer thought for a moment, picked up his pen and wrote, I would take off my uniform and mingle with the crowd. And can I say, that's what we do. And brothers and sisters, we might be here, but I know, I know in my own church family, I know in my own heart, we do that for days, for weeks, for months, for years. And the way we drive it is we say, my faith is a personal, private thing. It helps me in my life, but I wouldn't dream of imposing it on anyone else. That's how we, that's how we allow that mentality. And what does the Bible say to that? What does the Bible say to that? Well, four reasons, and let's have a look at them in Romans chapter 1 here. Four reasons for us to keep getting the gospel out. Can you see there at the bottom there? Grace, Gehenna, glory, godliness. So four, four things as Paul writes and, and tells the, the, the Christians at Rome why he's wanting to push on to Spain with the gospel. Why to evangelize? So first of all, grace. And I, I long for this in my heart, and I long for it, I long for it for my non-Christian friends. I this is scary tonight, but scarier today was ringing up the father of a, a school friend of mine who I know is poorly, very sick, and longing it for him. He's not a Christian man. Asking if he'd read a Christian book, asking about his soul. I long for it for him. 
So grace, what have we got here? Let's have a look down. These amazing words that started the Reformation. Romans 1.17. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So do you remember the story of Martin Luther? There he is, 1505. He's a monk. And he says, I hated God because God demanded a righteousness from me and all I found in myself was wickedness and I came to hate God. And he cried out, I seek a merciful God that I can love. And then he had his tower experience and he realized that God did not just demand a righteousness from him, but amazingly in the gospel, he gave him the righteousness of Christ. So Luther has this experience in which he realizes that here's the issue, the essence of Christianity was not to offer a righteousness to God. That's what he thought. That's why when I take funerals, people from non-Christian backgrounds say, well, he was a very good man. Didn't hurt a fly. They're offering a righteousness to God. No, Luther suddenly realized as he studied Romans that the essence of the Christian faith was you receive a righteousness from God. So God gives me the performance of Jesus Christ for me. It's a staggering thing. As he sees me, he sees Jesus. He doesn't just forgive me, he gives me this gift of righteousness. As he sees me, he sees me as thoroughly righteous. So I don't know if you've seen this book. The Memoirs and Confessions of a Justified Sinner, Rico Tice, volume 37 of many. It's everything I've ever done wrong. And do you know, it's very boring, very boring, because every page is blank. Every page is blank because I'm not only forgiven, I'm also given the righteousness of Christ. So Gresham Machen, the Westminster theologian on his deathbed, cried out as he was dying, his last words, I thank God for the obedience of Jesus. So here's my question. If you look back at the last week, just think back over the last week. Here's my question. How does God feel about you? Just look back at the what last week. Look, look what's happened. I mean, how do, pick a word that describes how, how God feels about you. And can I say, the word is delighted if you're a Christian. God is delighted with you. And the reason he's delighted with you is he's delighted with Jesus and you now relate to God through Christ's performance, not your own. It's an amazing thing. So Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones used to ask people, are you a Christian? And sometimes they'd reply, well, not a very good one. And he knew at that point they'd not understood the gospel. At the heart of the gospel, I'm given a righteousness from God. So here's the question. It may be you're someone who's visiting tonight, but maybe the Christian faith isn't something that's clear to you and you've turned up here with all these weirdos. Well, welcome. Thank you for coming. But can I ask you this question, all of you? If you were to die tonight, and I'm worried this friend of this school friend's dad, I'm worried that he will die soon. But if you were to die tonight and God said, why should I let you into heaven, what would you reply? He says, why should I let you in, what would you reply? Would you say, well, look, I've been good enough. I, I mean, I don't steal. I, I keep the Ten Commandments. I give to charity. Actually, my charitable giving is index linked. Would you say that I've not been a murderer or a rapist or a dentist or a traffic warden? I'm not one of those evil people. Or would you say, look, I don't lie? One person said to me on this one, I'm not kidding, they said, Rico, I give blood. I'm a blood donor. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I give pints of blood. I had to go to the loo to recover after they said that. 
Or maybe you'd say, no, it's not just that I'm religious. I mean, I go to church. I don't just go to church. I'm a member of the Church of England. You know that, don't you? Why is it the Anglicans will be first in heaven? Because it says in 1 Thessalonians 4 that the dead in Christ will rise first. That's us. That's the Anglicans. Don't come near us. I've been baptized. That's why I'm going to heaven. I've been confirmed by a bishop, you know. A bishop confirmed me. I pray. I read the Bible. I go to communion. That's why I'm going. And one person, I've had this said quite often. I watch songs of praise. That's why I'm going. Can I say, if, if your trust is in anything you have done, these things will do you no good at all. They're like sticking plasters on a gaping wound. Are you trusting in what you have done or what Christ has done? Where is your identity? Victor Hugo said, said, said life's greatest joy is to be convinced you're loved. The Lord Jesus has died for me. Oh, and the grace of God means that I'm covered I have that righteousness. So here was um, a, a bishop, an Australian bishop, Alf Stanway, speaking to some men going to the mission field in, 19, in the 1950s. And he said this, if other people knew you like God knows you, all your faults, all your vain thoughts, all your sins, all the things in your heart, all the wrong thoughts you ever had, would they trust you with the kind of work God trusts you with? Here is the supreme confidence that God has in his own grace. He'll take the like of you and me and give us the privilege of being his saints. Do you know, there are two things that keep us going in Christian work. There are two things we have to know. Number one, the Christian faith is true. And secondly, it's wonderful. And if we're in doubt of any of those things, we won't keep going. Lindsay Brown, the head of IP, said, if people are convinced of those two things, this is true, Christ has risen, it's wonderful, he died for me, then it'll keep us going right through our ministries. When I was a little boy, because Dad grew tobacco in Africa, I loved, I loved comic books, and I, honestly, I had my treasure when I had this Asterix book. Dad would sometimes bring them back from trips abroad, and I, I, I just, it was all I wanted. Is the gospel your treasure? A couple of years ago, I was, I was at home on my, on my day off, and I was uh, in the sitting room with my parents, te teaching my nephews, age four and two, to scrummage. That's what clergy do on their days off. So I was there, and I was on the sitting room car carpet teaching Dalton, the four-year-old. I don't know why they called him that. It's a stupid name. Anyway, he's a great kid. <laughs> and I was teaching him to, to, to scrummage, and Patrick, the two-year-old, got so excited, he picked up a large plant pot, and he started to empty it all around the floor to make a pitch. And when I next looked up, there was mud all over the place. And at that point, my mother opened the door, Patrick's grandmother, and it was trashed the room. And she walked over to her grandson. She picked him up. She kissed him. And she said, let's go and have lunch. And as she carried him out of the room, he looked over her shoulder at Dalton and I on the ground, and he went, like that. <laughs> you see, he knew his grandmother had known what he'd, he'd done. She was going to clear up the mess and she loved him anyway. And brothers and sisters, that's the gospel. God knows what I've done, he loves me anyway, and he clears up the mess, and I can't believe his graciousness. Because dad worked abroad, I got sent to a boarding school when I was eight. I've just about recovered now, I'm just about through it. <laughs> and when I got to that school, I was taught three things. Tice, you are not good enough. Secondly, prove yourself, and thirdly, it's a dangerous world. And the prefect in my dorm got into bed with the prefect in the next door dorm each night, both 12, 12, 13 years old, those kids. And I knew it was a dangerous world. Can you imagine what happened when I learned the gospel? You're not good enough. I know I'm not good enough. 
but I live by Christ's performance, not my own. Prove yourself, no, not to God. No, I, I trust in Christ's performance. It's a dangerous world, yes, but he'll take me through it. Brother, sister, is this in your identity, God's grace? Is it true and wonderful? It's right at the heart of what keeps us going. Oh, please pray that we'll have it right at the center of this week. We'll be thrilled by what God has done for us, the grace of God. Secondly, secondly, the Bible doesn't just speak of God's grace. Secondly, it speaks of Gehenna. Now, now Gehenna is the Greek word used. I only know two Greek words. One is Gehenna, the other is kebab, as you can see. But literally, Gehenna was the stinking public garbage dump southwest of Jerusalem. All the offal and filth of Jerusalem was, was thrown there. Uh, rotting carcasses were left there. Even the bodies of criminals were there. And there were fires kept constantly burning. And here is the issue, brothers and sisters. When the Lord Jesus wanted to describe what happened to people who died without their sin being paid for, he said they go to a place of Gehenna. They go to a place of fire. They go to a place of torment. And he said it again and again and again. He is the theologian of hell. The Lord Jesus is. He is the one who speaks of it, and it's because, because at the heart of the Christian faith, we're saved from hell through the cross for heaven. At what price? But again and again, he speaks of it. Matthew 5.22, but anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fires of hell. Matthew 5.29, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Matthew 7.13, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. Matthew 8.10-12, but the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 10, 26, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. 13, 42, they will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And this is the most loving man that ever lived that said it. This is the man who in the Sermon on the Mount said, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. And then as he was judicially murdered, cried out for his killers, Father, forgive them. They know what they do. And brothers, sisters, my only question is this. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? And secondly, do you love people? Because if you do, you'll speak. And so Paul says, can we see as we look down, Romans 1.14, I'm bound to both Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and foolish. And the word there is, I am in debt. Now, there's two ways for me to get into that. One is that John, who brought me here tonight, gives me 10 pounds, I owe it back to him. But the second way to get into debt, which is the way described here, is that John's wife, Pamela, gives me 10 pounds for me to pass on to John. And I'm in both of their debts until I've passed that on. And that is the debt that Paul is, as he wants to drive to Spain, that's the debt he's talking about. So Bishop Frank Retief, a wonderful Anglican bishop down in Cape Town, causes his clergy, can I call you to do that, to have one mission statement every year at the top of their diaries and their day planners. He said, can you please have this mission statement on top? Here it is. That people without Christ go to hell. That people without Christ go to hell. And can I say to you, if you are a non-Christian here tonight, thank you for coming. But we really believe this. And we are terrified for you. 
and we're pleading with you, please, to trust in what Christ did when he died on the cross. I'm being, I'm being as serious as I can possibly be. And in our diaries, let's, let's put this in place. I went to Oxford University to Theological College, where I got a third, actually. Actually, when I got my third, I said to my tutor, was I close to a 2-2? He said, no, Rico, it was a very solid third. So I knew then that <laughs> ordination into the Anglican Church was the only career option available. Here I am. And I played rugby for the university when I was there. And uh, uh, I gave a tape of a sermon I'd preached to a guy in the rugby team called Ed. And I gave him a sermon on 1 John, on John 1 verse 29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And, uh, and one evening for a bit of a laugh, Ed put that tape on with three other guys in a non-Christian rugby house. There was Dave and Ben and Chris. And Dave was captain of the Blues team. And this tape was played, and in it I said, either the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus, pays for our sin, or we pay ourselves in eternal torment in hell. And as, as Dave listened to this tape, he got more and more angry, and at the end of it he said this, Rico is not my friend. And they said, of course he's your friend. You room together, play golf together, you play in the front row together. He said, no, he's not my friend. He said, if that's what Rico believes, the fact he said nothing to me in 18 months means that he does not care for me. That's what he said. He said, he owes me this. He owes me a debt. And Ed, the non-Christian I'd given the tape to, rang me up at college and said, Rico, this is really embarrassing, but I'm, I'm so sorry I played the tape to Dave, and he's very upset you haven't spoken to him. And I think you need to speak to him. Yeah, he's right. And John Stott, who's died recently, said, we need more tears. Brothers, sisters, where are the tears? Where are the tears for the lost? We should be brokenhearted and speak. And the reason we don't speak is that we often care far more of what people will think of us now than what Christ will think of them on Judgment Day. That's why we don't speak. I was doing a little seminar in Singapore on this, and, and the minister of the church I was speaking in, I was talking about a place called hell. He stood up halfway through the talk, and he said, I'm so sorry, Rico, I know you've not been to Singapore before, but you need to know that in this culture, culture it's totally inappropriate to talk about, about death and hell. And I thought of exactly what to say to him six hours later. Do you do that? Six hours later, I thought of it. He said this. Uh, uh, this is what I should have said to him. Well, on Judgment Day, I'll say to my friends, I'm sorry I didn't speak to you. It was culturally inappropriate. Our oh, brothers and sisters, we, we're functional universalists. We don't really believe this. If we did, we'd speak to people. So the great question to ask is this. Where will they be in 100 years' time? Where will my friends be in 100 years' time? And the, the, the success or failure of any life is what I do with Jesus because he, by his resurrection, is the one who holds the future and holds history. Where will they be in 100 years' time? And we need more tears because people without Christ go to hell. Thirdly, thirdly, the glory of God. The glory of God. You see, again and again, one faces this. What are we made for? Well, we're made for God's glory. That's what we're meant to be doing. So Isaiah 43 says, Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. So that the testimony we heard, that young, that young woman with her parents dead, consumed by the glory of God, that the people of her country should know about the Lord Jesus. At the heart of our life is that, is that we should be seeking to, 
to glorify God. We should be battling to do that. 1 Peter 2.9, you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praise of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. But what is the problem? Well, the problem is, let's have a look down, Romans 1 verse 25. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. The issue is, if you're trying to get evangelism going in your local church, you have to fight the glory wars. That's why people are apathetic. You see, what happens is, people begin to serve, to worship created things, not the creator, which are good things provided for our well-being, but they functionally replace God. So here's the issue. Let me ask you this. Let me unearth your idols just with a couple of questions. What are your daydreams and what are your nightmares? Because that will tell me what you're living for. And I should be daydreaming about the Lord Jesus being known. But so often I'm not. I'm thinking about the World Cup all the time at the moment. But what are your daydreams? What are your nightmares? And that unearths my heart. That's what you're living for. And, 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 and you know, our hearts, Romans 1 tells us, get kidnapped. We're so easily deceived. And we want God then to be a divine waiter who just delivers us our dreams. And we touch base with him on a Sunday. That's what people do. Touch base on a Sunday. He gives me my, my dream. And then we ask the wrong question. Here's the wrong question. What is God's plan for my life? That is the wrong question. The right question is, what is God's plan for his world? That's the question I ask. What is God's plan for his world? Do you know, at the beginning of time, he carved my name in his hand, Isaiah. He then sent the Lord Jesus to die. It's no small thing. 2,000 years later, when I was absolutely self-obsessed, I was my own God, in his mercy, a maths teacher spoke to me about the gospel and he opened my blind eyes to who Jesus is. And then, despite my depravity, he gave me worthwhile things to do. And one day I'll stand before him and he'll say to me, Rico Tice, it's good to see you. You've been on my mind a very long time. And we are about bringing people to know this God. That is what we're to daydream about. But the desire for a good thing becomes a bad thing because it becomes the ruling thing. So again, I speak about London. I don't speak about Northern Ireland. But even at my church family, and I love my church family, physical health becomes more important than spiritual health. Physical appearance becomes more important than spiritual character. Approval of people becomes more important than thankfulness to God. Status and wealth become more important than identity in Christ. Brother, sister, what has captured your little kingdom, your heart? What? Loving family, good things, career success, I don't know. Francis Schaeffer said, said in, in, in his book, How Should We Then Live, 50 years ago, personal peace and affluence will do it. So do you know what I want? I want a rose-covered cottage in the countryside and a sky sports screen, then I'll be fine. And that's why people opt out. What are you daydreaming about? What are your nightmares? That's what you're living for. And that's why you're not doing evangelism. And if you see people in your churches that are apathetic, their hearts have been captured. And we have to fight the glory wars in ourselves, in others. Have real accountability, real friendship, real confession. That's the problem. It's idolatry. That's why the first two commandments are about this. 
It's why we're apathetic in our churches. It's why many won't go to the mission field. It's why many men won't go. Lastly, lastly, godliness. Godliness. John Chapman, the Australian evangelist, wrote this. You cannot be godly. You cannot be godly and not be concerned for the lost. God was so concerned for the lost that he sent his son to die. So this is extraordinary. What has happened in our churches, certainly I'm talking about London again, is somehow we've managed to separate godliness from evangelism. So people live a godly life, but they say, I don't do evangelism because my faith is a personal, private thing. It helps me in my life. I wouldn't dream of imposing it on other people. But at the heart of being godly, of being like God, is going to the lost. Exhibit A, Jesus. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he kept it to himself. And at the heart of what makes God most angry is the suppression of this truth about his son. And verse 18 tells us that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Say as you came here today, there you were, coming in here today, and as you walked along, there was a big truck, the brakes had gone, and it was going to hit you, this truck. And say, say my son Peter, he's a little boy, but say he ran across, he pushed you out the way, he got killed himself. And then you turned around and you said, you know, I didn't need that, I was fine. And I know that he saved your life. It's a banal illustration, but I'd be mortifly, mortifyingly offended. And yet, all over, all over Northern Ireland, all over uh, 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 London, people say this. This is what they say. Actually, I've lived a decent life and God will accept me because I'm good. Well, why did God send his son to die if being good is good enough? Why did he send him to die? If my goodness will get me accepted, why did he do that? And yet we suppress this truth. And at the heart of make, what makes God angry is that God has sent his son to die and we say, I don't need it, I can keep it at arm's length. And we refuse, John 16, verse 9, to believe in Jesus. And nothing makes God more angry. And that's why you can have charming friends that are delightful neighbors, and yet they're going straight to hell. Because they, they refuse, they refuse to take advantage of the death of Jesus. And they say, well, you know, I've been good enough. Nothing make God, get, makes God more angry. Well, I don't know, just of those four, let me close. But of those four, brother, sister, as we begin this week, grace, Gehenna, glory, godliness, which one of those four are you weakest on? Which one have you forgotten? Where do you need to go away with Romans 1 and really allow the word of God to change you? so that once more we are living to glorify the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Grace, a righteousness from God. His performance, not mine. Right at the center of my identity. Gehenna. People without Christ go to hell. glory. What are my daydreams? What are my nightmares? That's why I'm not engaging 
in evangelism with my heart. My heart's elsewhere. Godliness. Have I separated holiness from evangelism? Have I, have I put a wedge between the two and been happy with the way I'm going? Just a moment now to ask the Holy Spirit to convict you. Oh, Father God, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that we're forgiven. Thank you so much that as we come now and we see where we've gone wrong, thank you that, that we live by Christ's performance, not our own, that there is grace. But Lord, we pray that you'd help us to repent. And we ask, Lord, that we would believe your word and love people and so speak. So a moment now just to think of one person to speak to. One person who, because of what you've heard, they've been on your mind. And a moment now to determine that you will speak to them. Hold that person up. Oh, Father, we, we cry to you. Have mercy on them as you had mercy on us. And open their blind eyes. Make them spiritually hungry. Please, Lord, may they see who Jesus is and what he's done. And Lord, we cry to you for our churches. We cry to you for our home churches. We pray that the glory of Christ would be central and that there'd be proclamation afresh. Our lives are short. Please, Lord, please make this, your glory, our number one priority. Amen. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.